The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toko Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Kia ora and thank you for joining me for Episode 10 of Season 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show, I'll be speaking with Deathwalker Aralyn Dwaron, who is one of several artists exhibiting work in the Transforming Death Art Exhibition, which takes place from the 11th to the 16th of October in the Pumanawa Gallery at the Christchurch Arts Centre. Now, this is one of numerous death-related events following on from the third Death Matters New Zealand Conference, which took place in Christchurch on Friday, September 23. I was fortunate to be able to attend this one-day conference, which was dedicated to improving death literacy here in Aotearoa, so that we may all have the freedom to make more authentic choices and live more creative, connected and meaningful lives. But before I kōrero with Aralyn, it's time for the first bookend, Death in Print. This week, I'm going to unashamedly give a plug to the session called The Forgotten Epidemic at the Nelson Arts Festival later this month. As my regular listeners probably know, I am the curator and program manager of Puka Puka Talks, the festival's literary program. This year, I will be working with the fabulous Nelson Arts Festival team to deliver 18 events, plus four school visits by Selena Tusitala Marsh, who is New Zealand Poet Laureate from 2017 to 2019. This year, I will be joining best-selling authors Charity Norman and Wendell Nissen on stage to facilitate a conversation about what works when it comes to dementia treatment and care and what desperately needs to change to ensure our loved ones can die with dignity. This session will explore how the two authors transform death into art. Both Charity and Wendell have been through the fire of supporting a parent with dementia and their experiences have enabled them to write two astonishing books. Charity's mother Beryl died with Alzheimer's in 2016 and Wendell's mother Elsie died with the same disease in 2019. Now this is a really personal topic for me as my mum Robin was finally diagnosed with both Alzheimer's and vascular dementia a couple of years ago. I say finally because she had memory loss for some time before that which caused her a great deal of anxiety but her diagnosis was for many years elusive. I know I'm not alone in this experience 
So I invited Wendell and Charity to join me and Nelson to discuss what happens when a parent gets dementia and how to respond initially, as well as how their immediate whānau attempt to understand and process the experience afterwards. In Charity Norman's case, she wrote Remember Me, a compelling novel about a 40-something woman called Emily returning to Aotearoa to care for her father who has dementia. The story is also a whodunit as Emily gradually finds out the truth about the disappearance of their neighbour's daughter 25 years ago. When Catherine Wolfe, then the spin-off books editor, described the novel as extraordinarily moving in its exploration of the notion of a good death, she concluded that one can't write a book like this without a real story behind it. So this Puka Puka Talk session is your opportunity to hear that real story. Wendell Nissen also attempted to come to terms with her mother's final years by writing about it. In her case, a moving and often funny memoir called My Mother and Other Secrets. In doing so, she unexpectedly exposed numerous skeletons in the family closet. Determined to uncover the buried truth, Wendell's journalistic training led her to discover stories of loss, grief and love. My Mother and Other Secrets is a story about mothers and daughters, ageing and the way deep family traumas echo across generations spliced with practical advice. So please join Charity, Wendell and myself at the Forgotten Epidemic at 3pm on Friday, October 21, when we'll consider how best to support a loved one with dementia, discuss how to look after yourself in the process, examine theories about the contributing factors, genetics, nutrition, insomnia, physical inactivity and emotional repression, and look at what the latest science says about prevention. The question mark in this session title is, by the way, deliberate, because it seems to me that although dementia impacts on so many families' lives, it is another one of those tricky, taboo topics that we don't talk about enough. My guest on Deathwalker's Guide to Life today is Erilyn Dwaran, who left an established art career in the US about 15 years ago to make a home in Golden Bay. After completing the first Deathwalker training with Zenith Virago to be held in Aotearoa, which was at the end of 2015, Arilyn founded the first and only Death Cafe in Golden Bay about six years ago. And it's now an active group of about 200 people who not only meet in person from time to time, but engage with each other online and share ideas on Facebook. Now, Erilyn's here today because she's part of the Transforming Death Art Exhibition, which is a follow-on activity from Death Matters New Zealand, the third conference to take place in Christchurch. So she's also a painter, illustrator and sculptor who has specialised in using reclaimed materials, which we're going to talk a little bit more about later. And I, But I love the story of how you came to become an artist as an adult, which is up on your website, which was something along the lines of after painting windows mm. um, as a teenager, many years later, um, you first got the idea to start painting that way again when your husband, John, came home and he was a builder and he brought home some wooden framed windows and said, can you do something with these? Mm. And you decided that the frames were too nice to throw out. Yeah. And so you picked up your paintbrush and the rest, as they say, is history. So kia ora, Erin, and welcome to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. <laughs> before, we, we, before we get into talking all about art, what I'd like to do is go a little bit further back in history 
and mm. ask you, first of all, to recall what your first experience of death was. What's the thing that jumps to mind when I ask you that question? It's it's interesting because when you asked that question, I had two things that happened simultaneously, and I never connected them before. Um, my father invited me to go with him when I was about 11 or 12 years old to go to the hospital to see his mother, who uh, my grandmother, who was dying of Alzheimer's. And we went into the hospital room and um, she thought that I was her sister, Margaret. She started calling me Margaret. She had no idea who my father was, but she was talking directly to me as if I were her sister. And she was quite close to the end. Um, I, I know this now, but I didn't. I was quite young, no idea what was happening. And I remember my father just not talking the whole way home. I didn't know how to navigate that or anything. And then she died shortly after that. But the the same, that same weekend, it was a weekend, that same weekend, um, I interrupted one of our cats out in the bush of my house in Massachusetts. I interrupted one of our cats um, kind of toying with a, a, a baby squirrel and not quite killing it. But then I chased the cat off, but the, the, the squirrel was kind of done for, but it lived for another hour or so. And I sat with the, I sat with the squirrel and stayed with it while it died. And then I went and I visited it as it died several times after that to, to, cause I was curious about what happens afterwards and the decay. And I kept going back to this and, um, it was my own little private thing. And my grandmother died shortly after, and I never saw my grandmother again, never went to the funeral, never went to the... And actually, I see the two as being related now. So, thanks for the question. <laughs> so, wow, right yeah. that same weekend, both of those things happened. Yeah. 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 So, was it? Was there a reason why you didn't see... You didn't go to the funeral, did you say? Or you just didn't see uh, anybody again? Yeah. yeah. No one in my family talked about death, talked about... You know, there were all the, the euphemisms, the usual, uh, she's in heaven now, and those kind of things uh, with the angels, she's passed on. Um, so, no one really, no one talked to us about, she's dead, there's a funeral, we didn't, I wasn't at the funeral. Um, yeah, so, and and there was no grieving in the house. I, I really can't even imagine what it was like for my dad right then, because there was just no conversation. It was like, oh, now she's not here. And so, there was no real process. But boy, I felt for that squirrel. I was going every day to be with that squirrel and wondering about his mom. Like, where was his mom that he fell out of the nest or whatever, you know, so. And this might yeah. seem like a bit of a left field question, but what was your relationship like with your cat after that? With my cat. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. <laughs> I loved my cats. Yeah. You know, I, I was I was the kid. There were a bunch of animals in the house. We had a couple of dogs and a couple of cats always, and they all slept on my bed. So, yeah, I'm a pretty forgiving person, and I get it. I get how the natural world works, and. Yeah. You know, I did. I did feel some anger, but I also felt this like fascination of being, like watching this death happen right in front of me. Yeah. So I remember mm. being really fascinated. I hadn't thought about that in a long time, actually. Would you believe that when my grandmother died, I had this connection with my cat too? I don't remember my cat killing any other creatures <laughs> at the time, but I had. I just, for me, my cat and my grandmother's death go hand in hand. Oh, no way. Wow. So, yeah, a bit of a shared experience there. Ah. 
Yeah. They're in service, <laughs> our animals. <laughs> yeah, so we also have the thing in common of growing up in a culture where death was taboo and people didn't talk about it and there was a yeah. feeling that especially children needed to be protected from death in some way. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. You know, that just, that brings me to mind to like another, my first funeral was for this, gosh, she was super young. She was like seven or eight. One of our, you know, a family in our neighborhood, the, the daughter died of leukemia and we went to her, Renee, we went to her funeral and it was all really confusing. Like, why is she in a box? And nobody talked about it, but we went to the funeral and um, yeah, it was just not these conversations. And mm-hmm. Apart from feeling a bit confused at the funeral, what do you remember the other emotions you felt? Was she a, was she a friend of yours? And her family, like her brothers, were friends of my brothers, and they lived on our street. And you know, I, you know what I remember from that funeral is I wanted so badly to touch her. I wanted to reach into the coffin and touch her 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 hand. And to feel if it was hot or cold or, you know, just to, I'd never touched a dead thing before, except for my squirrel, obviously. And, and I didn't even, I touched that with a stick, you know, but so I wanted to touch her and I knew that I couldn't. There was something in me that knew I couldn't do that because I would get in big trouble. Mm-hmm. So I, I had my fascination with death and dying very early. So I want to fast forward a few decades now, <laughs> but you may want to comment about many um, sort of key things that happened over that time. But you're in Golden Bay and you heard about Zenith Virago coming to Aotearoa, to the top of the South Island, and the Death Walker training was going to happen. So, yeah, Mm. what was it that spoke to you about that opportunity? (laughs) Can you recall? Um, It may have been some good friends, actually, (laughs) uh, because I remember – I've just always had a fascination with death. It's always been there. And, you know, I just thought I was a morbid person that whenever I heard somebody died, I wanted to know how they died and what was, you know, like I just was always fascinated about it. And I wanted to use the word death a lot and not just use all the euphemisms. And like, I didn't understand. And I also had this fascination with um, indigenous cultures, especially, you know, the First Nations people of the U.S. And it's like, and also old like Celtic cultures and things where you just imagine like grandma is dying in the lounge in the living room and she's in the bed and everybody, the kids are on the bed and the the chickens are in the bed and, you know, everybody's telling the stories and she's dying there around everybody and everyone's coming with food and songs. And it just made sense to me. And I just didn't understand. It just felt incomplete for me. I just really didn't understand it. And then I just had this fascination with, you know, all things death or endings or this real fascination always with, I want to talk about the things that we don't talk about. So, there's all sorts of things in that human realm, but death has been a biggie. And yeah, so I think it was that. And I was in a conversation with some people and saying, yeah, I've got this fascination with death. And somebody said, hey, did you know Zenith Virago is coming? La, 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 this death walker. And just even the term death walker, I said, yes, I don't know how I'll make it happen, but I'll make it happen. And some dear friends made it, you know, helped me make it happen. And I was there. And yeah, and it, it was a huge validation, huge, just kind of opening doors for me, knowing that, wow, I'm not nuts. 
I'm not nuts. You know, this is actually real. And I felt very excited to be, to find a place for my passion for having a different conversation for, for kind of changing how we are in life. And, you know, I, I, I was sniffing that maybe there's a little more life when you acknowledge death. And, you know, I didn't know so much about that, but I also was a practicing Buddhist for a lot of years. And, you know, um, death, death, um, death contemplation is a huge part of the Buddhist practice. So, I, I had that too. And yeah, so it's always been there for me. So, so it was quite a natural, uh, natural move to go into the death walker thing and actually kind of give, give a, you know, be an activist. It feels, it feels like a, like a really the sacred activism to like, yeah, I want to, I want to support cultural change and, and not support the status quo. So that's really exciting to me. Yeah. And I did it in the training. I didn't know because I didn't, because there are people, there were people there who were writers who were um, working in the death field, either as celebrants or funeral home directors or um, working in hospice or working in palliative care and all these different things. And I didn't know, knowing who I am, it didn't seem like I'm, you know, hospice is fascinating to me, but I don't think that that's my thing. And because I'm a creator, because I'm an artist, I, I want to make big, broad strokes. And I'm really passionate about transformation. And that's about broad strokes. And so, I didn't know how it was going to be. And then when I heard about Death Cafe, I went, bing! And that was really exciting to me. And then also doing, um, you know, the little videos and films and just, yeah, wanting to do things like that because I, I you know, I'm, I'm comfortable being out in front sometimes. So, um, <laughs> it, it feels like that can be, that's, a, that's a, a method of just kind of putting it in the space, but without shouting at people, you know, to do it creatively, to, to create a different conversation. So, yeah. 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 I, I was just thinking about Zenith's recent keynote presentation at the Death Matters conference, which was learning to live life fully to 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 die well, essentially. Yeah. That was the, the theme of it. But at the beginning, she talked about how we were all individual feathers, but together we made this wing that was, you know, capable of flying. And so that spoke to that, you know, kind of sacred activism that you just. Yeah, that's so, cool. Yeah, that's it was a lovely image, actually. I think I re remember getting goosebumps when she said it. Yeah, that's really beautiful, actually. Yeah, mm. kind of mm. soaring. Mm. So, not long after the Death Walker training, though, you're, yeah. you you headed back to the States, to your home, to be yeah. with your father. Tell us about how that experience was and, and how, if you, I'm sure you've reflected on it, how the having just done the Death Walker training might have equipped you to handle that situation do you think it had it, it made you approach that experience slightly differently than you would yeah. otherwise it totally absolutely carrie because what was interesting is before the death walker training i had been in the us for about 8 months taking care of my dad and kind of sorting out his finances clearing out his house finding him assisted living care sorting his medical stuff his money all of it and you know to that was quite quite a big um quite a great big growing space for me and and to be in relationship with him but one part of it was that i actually you know i had to kind of pre-plan his funeral that's a big thing like you go to the funeral home and you put the money in and you you can decide everything and i said and 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 you know they come just like a restaurant with a menu you can put this much into flowers this much into this you can hire this hall you know so i ding 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 wrote the check it's held in a trust and then when i need it it's there so 
I was able to tick that off the list, plan the funeral, you know, um, no conversations about death. Uh, there were some, you know, cause I was talking with my dad about kind of what he would like. And, you know, that was that whole process of having conversations with him was really remarkable. And, um, but then I did the death walker training and then my dad died shortly after that. I, I, I might be forgetting the order of things, but because I went back for my, when, and my dad's funeral, and I went back with this, like, raw, I went into the funeral home and, and I said to the very kind gentleman who was, who was really, um, we had a very nice connection because I was fine with talking about death. I, and I was also not in grief when we met. And um, I said, Hey, I know you said that when I did all this stuff that I could change my mind. And he said, yes. And I said, well, I've changed my mind. And I don't think he's ever actually had anyone say that. And I said, I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. I'm going to be the celebrant. We're not going to use the funeral home. We're going to have a nightclub so my father can have a sing-along party. You know, like, and I changed all this stuff. And he sat there going like, whoa. <laughs> and um, that was really great. So, um, I still use them for some of the things. And I said, he's not going to be embalmed you know, da, 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 da. Oh, it was really incredible um, to, to walk in there with this kind of um, um, empowered. I was really empowered and it was not, I wasn't handing my, my center and my authority away to, you know, an industry professional and saying, Oh, what do you recommend? I was saying, this is what I talked about with my dad. This is what we're going to do. This is what he would like. And this is what we're going to create. And we created this, um, my father loved um, piano bars and hung out in nightclubs and had this whole, his whole community was that and singing the old jazz standards and everyone loved him. And he was very much the, I got my hand bone from him. He was very much the, the raconteur. And so I recreated one of those nightclubs and got the pianists and, and there were four pianists that really wanted to play at my dad's quote unquote funeral. And um, his whole community came and we were all singing around the piano and people were just like, I've never been at anything like this. And it was so perfect and so wonderful. So, um, and I, and I have Zenith and the death Walker training for that to just be that empowered and, and to empower other people to like, take it into your own hands. And, and, and there are some things that it's really helpful to have professionals for. And it's, it's helpful to have things that people who know kind of some of the legal things in and out and that sort of thing. But um, to really own, to own it, I felt like I owned it and it, and it, and it was such a loving experience that everyone was relaxed and had fun and connected and are still talking about it, you know, these, what, six years later. So yeah, very cool experience. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I, and it was really from the death Walker training. I just walked into that funeral home saying, yeah, boom, this is what I'm, yeah, I'm going to buy my, I'm not going to buy I'm going to buy my own box. I'm not going to buy one of your expensive urns. And I went to the local kind of tr Christmas tree shop and bought a beautiful box, you know, that sort of thing. And it cost me instead of, you know, $150, it cost me 14, you know, but it was gorgeous. And yeah, so it was an amazing experience. Mm. I was grateful mm. for it. Yeah. And it was after that time back in the States for the funeral that when you got back, it wasn't long after that, that you started the death cafe, was it? Yeah. 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 So was that, was that something that you went away from the death walker training going, yes, I want to do this yeah. in Golden Bay? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, I'm going to. Yeah, I knew I knew in the Death Walker training, as soon as I heard about the Death Cafe, all these lights went on for me, just knowing who I am as a, you know, as a performer and a space holder and a teacher and a leader, like all of these things. It's like, ah, this, this is this is very much what what I can do. And I'm passionate about heart sharing and people connecting and and the, the power of Death Cafe. It's just it's tremendous. It's actually like. And it feels so subversive. It's like this subversive um, activism where we're not marching and carrying signs or handing out petitions, but we're actually just gently unplugging a machine by having tea and cake and talking about the things that we've been told not to talk about. And it's so powerful. I, I love it. And I and the laughter that happens and the tears and the connection and the stories and um, the feedback I get afterwards. People are like, wow, they, they never expected to have fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then people go home and they have the conversations with their children that they need to have, or they, you know, they put some wheels in motion or they write out this document that they need to do. And, um, and I feel, I feel, um, I feel really grateful that something like Death Cafe um, exists because, um, because it, it's, it's simple on one level, but it's actually so profound on another. And I think that change change when it is presented as simple is much more powerful um, and can, and can, and can touch so many more. So I really, I really love it. I love it. Mm. for And I believe some of the people that, you know, sort of came from the beginning, you know, to the the first death cafes in Golden Bay have, you know, some of those people have left the region now and have traveled to other places in the world and taken, taken the concept with them yeah. hopefully yeah yeah and of course you know i'd been trying to get over the hill to uh, uh, join you a number of times and i and i hadn't managed to and then COVID happens yeah and you went online yes uh, for a while and, and i was able to join you and it was just it was really uh, because i had two close friends who died around yes. that time it was yes. so supportive of me so yeah it's oh, cool. fantastic and there were people on that call like those calls there were people from in canada and new york and i think i want to say we had somebody from brazil one day because someone had left the bay and they were and they heard i was doing a death cafe and oh it was so fantastic so i was like oh this is interesting and now obviously it's a group where people share things that they find helpful and i mean there's some great yeah. resources that are being popped up on the oh on the yeah Facebook page yeah yeah, there's so much out there now, hey, because, you know, when we first, like, I remember one of the first things that Zenith said in our Deathwalker training was saying, you, we are now riding a wave. And this wave is really starting to grow and get bigger. And it still was early days. You know, we're still like, oh, we need to get people talking about death. And now it's like, you know, there's Caitlin Doughty and, uh, you know, and it's like, but she was like, here, here, and there's Zenith. And, but now it's like, boom, there's mm. so much out there, so much information, so much innovation. You know, there's the, the composting, the composting movement on the West Coast of the U.S. It's so awesome. And, you know, all these different technologies and perspectives coming in, but it's, it's in, it's in our daily conversations now. I see it all the time and it feels, it's so remarkable. I feel so happy about it. So let's talk about your art now. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you, your art practice has evolved. And if you could introduce our listeners to the technique you use in particular, because that's so fascinating. And so, 
yeah, original. <laughs> so, yeah. So the story you told at the beginning about John bringing home these windows, that story is about like the, the, the paintings that I do on glass, but I've been an artist since I was a little kid and I used to do, I've done a, a, lots of different things. But um, when I was a teenager in my hometown, we used to, the high school kids were given a box of paints and some Christmas cards. And we went out to paint the merchant's windows in my small town in Massachusetts. And that was a, it was a fundraiser for scholarships. And I remember my first time doing it, I figured out the backwards thing that you paint the outline first and you paint the shading first, and then you paint the rest of it. And I figured it out. And yeah, it's a formula really. It's, you know, it's kind of simple, but it's, it's like looking at, um, imagine making a, making um, a cake, but you start with the frosting <laughs> and you go and you go back to the, the, then you do the cake last. And so it's this sort of, um, you, you know, but you just have to start thinking in layers. So as a, as a creative process, it's maybe not as juicy as, as watching something kind of form in front of you and build up. But for me, because, because of the images that I'm, I'm attracted to and that arrive for me are telling stories or they're capturing these, these like human moments, or it's like, the, the, I, I want to believe that the work I do has something to say. And since I was a little kid, I wanted whatever I did to move people. And I, I get it now. I get, I get it. I'm, it's not like, whoa, I'm so great, but I get that that was actually a, a piece of who I was and always has been. So I, the artwork, so this technique helps the pictures say what they need to say. So I get that. And so it's, it's, so I paint on old windows. I paint directly on the glass. And so if I'm holding a window up, I'm painting on this side of the window, but you're looking at the painting from the other side of the window. So that means the first, the first touches of paint I make are the last touches that would be on a usual, on a regular frontwards painting. So it's a bit of a backwards technique. It's an ancient technique. It's a, I've seen it in Japan and and uh, Russia, Ukraine. There's a lot of backwards painting, old stuff. Um, so it's been around for a super long time. And yeah, I did it when I was a teenager. And then I was uh, I was late for a deadline for an exhibition. And at the time, I was making paintings on reclaimed this heavy insulation board covered with canvas and modeling paste. And I was making my own canvases and making these paintings. And I was late. I was behind schedule for getting these paintings out for this deadline for an exhibition. And my husband came home with these windows and there were 10 of them. And they were, they, they were, they were not huge and they were beautiful frames. And he said, can you do something with this? And that night I went, oh, wow, I'm really behind schedule. And I know window painting goes fast, but I'd never done fine art window painting. It had always been kind of this advertising or holiday thing. So, I just had this idea of taking the images that I was going to, going to put on the canvas and I did them backwards onto the windows and the exhibition sold out. And I'd been a struggling artist my whole life and I've never had an exhibition show sell out. I mean, this was just like, wow. So, that got my attention. <laughs> so, you know, it's sad to say, but that's, that's what got my attention was that people were really responding to the pictures and the technique and it was unusual and different. And so that's kind of what I do. And I, and I, there's something about looking into a window and seeing this image and that it's so immediate because it's on the glass. It's not under glass, it's on the glass. And so I don't know, the, somehow the images get to say what they want to say a little bit easier. They're extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. 
To be honest, the hardest part about making these paintings is that I have to let go of being a perfectionist. I have to let go of my idea about what it's going to look like because I've already put, you know, when I get to like the fourth layer, if I turn it around, then because I'm painting blind now, if I turn it around and I don't like what I see, I have to scrape it off. So it's got this little bit of an outsider art look that it's kind of like, it's not perfect. They're a bit loose and spontaneous and, you know, because it gets a bit boring to scrape things off and try to be perfect. So for me, so that's actually the tricky part is me letting go what, what I think it could be in my head and see what's happened and, you know, trust it and let my little children fly out the door, you know? So mm-hmm. that's the hard part for me. So you said, you like your you want your art to be about storytelling and to and all yeah. about a moment and a, and a feeling in a moment. So, yeah. how did you select the work that's and and actually I'm not quite sure how many pieces do you have in the exhibition? Uh, yeah. Or is that a million well, dollar question? <laughs> it is. It's it's it could be the million dollar question. Um, uh, the pieces have not been completed yet, so they're all. Mm in progress. Mm. So, there will be a minimum of three, a maximum of four, five, maybe. I mean, they're, they're all kind of in progress. So, uh, it depends on, you know, how many late nights I do and how happy I am with what I see. And then, uh, then they'll go down to Christchurch for the exhibition. The mm. exhibition opens 11th of October. So That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I've still got a little bit of time, but yeah. not much. So, so, what sort of ideas or, or um, feelings or concepts are you exploring around death in around death. creating these? Yeah. Yeah. I I'm a I'm a lover of mystery and and like kind of walking that edge of the unknown. Because I could you could ask me the question, what do I think happens after I die? Or what what do I think about that? And I could, depending on what time of the day it is, I could give you 20 different answers because it's all, you know, it's not solid, except that I know it's unknown. And you know, I can have my guesses, but so there's a lot of the pictures are about kind of the unknown, but it's also about the sweetness of life and living with that edge of impermanence and that edge that there is a use by date. Nobody gets out without it. And so there's that. There's also, you know, just stories and the opportunity to kind of put, put down life sometimes, put like step outside of life. You know, this idea that the dying is an adventure. It's a threshold. I'm passionate about transformation, about, you know, the, the, I do rites of passage work as well with teens becoming adults and, and now like women moving into, you know, past 50. I'm really passionate about life stages and, and death is a life stage. And it's like a, you're becoming something else now and you're unbecoming something. So it's kind of that, that sort of juice of life that's that's the underpinning of lots of things so it's about mystery and it's about you know seeing life through this different lens and so it's often about wonder but often about um ancestors and stories and being parts of lineage and because because I'm going to die just like my dad did and his dad did and his mother did and her mother and and so then you just become like you know this on this um I love the image of the you know how when you you grow chilies and you string them up and you put a string of chilies together it's like oh now my my chilies on the string and I don't know what happens to that string and I don't know what's going to happen to my chili but yeah it's sort of like becoming part of like oh I'm part of the human experience and the other piece of it is that 
Uh, and this is the piece that really dropped me into the death work. Actually, I had a very pivotal moment of like, oh, I, I got why this death work was so important. And it was because on a big scale, oh, I feel tingles just even thinking about it, is that being separate from death uh, meant that I was separate from nature. I was separate from, from the natural world, from all that is alive on earth dies, lives and dies. So, why would I be outside of that? And so, by contemplating my death and asking people to contemplate their death, they step back into the cycles of living and dying. You're the leaf that falls from the tree. You're that squirrel, you know? It's like, it's all going to happen to everyone. And it's, there's something so humbling about it. So, yeah. So, the, the, my art's about that sort of thing. I'm, it's, that's a lot of talking, but for what are yeah, what are actually yeah, quite yeah. simple pictures. They're very simple, simple pictures. They're not very, you know, I, I thought when I was a young artist that to move people, I had to be shocking. And I was very, I was very disturbed that I made pretty pictures and I kept making pretty pictures and I, and I, and I wasn't shocking. And I, I needed, I thought I needed to paint with menstrual blood and do skulls and, you know, like, but actually I make pretty pictures. I enjoy pretty pictures and, but there's always a little bit of a, you know, a little. Yeah, there's always an edge to them. Yeah, <laughs> there's always a very subtle edge. It draws you in. It's like, oh, that's a that's a lovely. Oh, I don't know what's going on there, but I need I need to spend more time with this, you know. So yeah, it's a it's a little bit uh, elusive. Tell us about the whale. Well, I have a love for whales, and uh, you know, if you if if you believe in reincarnation, I believe that I've had a lifetime as a whale. I I really feel that I have a beautiful kinship to them, and. Um, um, there are some indigenous uh, stories that the whales are the storytellers, that they are the archivists. Of, they carry all of the stories of the human history, of the earth history. And, and maybe it's because they're so big, they can carry so much. And I love that idea. And so, I've been painting whales for years. And so, I paint these whales and with um, but they, they, are, they are the storytellers. I call them the storyteller series. And there's always a different story happening in each one. And this one that Melanie chose that will be in the exhibition. Um, in, and it's a huge, oh, I think, is it a sperm whale? I think it's a sperm whale, yes. And, and in the very, and there's a lot of shading in it, but in the very front of the whale, if you look closely, there's an old woman sitting on a chair riding in the front of the whale. It's her whale. It's her story. It's her life story. And she's sitting in a chair and she's looking out through kind of like through the front of the head of the whale. And she's going for this ride and it's kind of like her final ride. And, and so her story's being told behind her, not so much in, um, not so much directly, but it's implied that the, the whale is full of, of her story, but, and then, the, and it's also full with um, roses. And I, I love roses. I've, I have a, I've come to have a deep appreciation for roses, the way they kind of unfold and, um, they're just like grace to me and, and coming to abundance and coming to ripeness. There's something so elegant about them. So, this, this whale is actually like her stories underneath and the top is filled with roses. And then on the outside, on the top of the, the whale, there's a, there's a young girl flying a kite. And um, one could assume, if one wanted to, that that is her. That is, that is her, uh, her innocence you know, on just riding the tail of the, of the whale, flying her kite. 
and uh, and you know it's flying on a kind of a, a dawn sky and yeah so it's a it's a very sweet image and um, but it's got some it's got some heft to it you know it's not uh, it's not saccharin but it's mm. You know, it pulls you in. I- I'm so glad I asked you to talk about that because that just <laughs> paints such a beautiful image in my mind's eye. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And maybe we can share the a picture of the whale, um, that particular painting on. Yeah, on sure. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Erin. It's been absolutely wonderful Thanks to have this quarter on with you. And yeah, and I look forward to hearing how the exhibition goes and. Thanks. Love yep, to see too. the work when it's finished. Yeah, and hey, thanks so much for having these conversations. It's really great that this is this is part of that wave that's out there, and I just really, really honor you and appreciate you for doing that. Thank you very much. Listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland, and I've just been speaking with Aralyn Dwaron. And now it's time for Death on Screen, and today I'm delighted to introduce you very briefly to the extraordinary filmmaking collective Green Renaissance and two of their short docos which feature Aralyn. Trail of Light is a seven-minute film which tells a little more of Aralyn's journey as a death walker and her belief that it's only when we recognise that we're going to die that we truly start to live. Giving Back to the Earth is a 10-minute film which also features Aralyn and others discussing the fear of death why it's taboo, and the consequences of unprocessed grief. They challenge us to embrace death and encourage us to recognise our place in the cycle of life and death and ask, what do I want the end of my life to look like and what will happen to my body when I die? You can find both videos on my website, deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Just go to the episode 10 page. And since we've been exploring in this episode how death is represented in art, and visual art in particular, I'd like to share with you some background about the logo for the show. I chose the lotus flower because it represents rebirth and new beginnings and serves as an analogy of sorts for the human condition. Even though it grows in dark, muddy waters, it produces the most beautiful flower. It also symbolises the cycle of life, birth, decay, death and rebirth. And I selected the colour orange for my lotus flower because it's both the iconic colour of autumn leaves, a reminder of death and decay, and is also known as a colour that evokes joy, enthusiasm and expression of emotions. And on that note, may your day be full of energy and joy. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, ka mihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa. See you next time. podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show first broadcast on fresh fm the top of the south's community access media station with support from new zealand on air the funding of access media makes these podcasts possible 
To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.